You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Kane with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined again. This will be the second time I've had Jason Tremblay of the Strength Guys on here. Um, the first time that we had chatted, we chatted, we, we kind of went over like programming volumes and stuff. And I think um, Jason had brought this up to my attention that when he had re-listened to it, it kind of sounded like we do things extremely similar. But in fact, there are a lot of uh, differences amongst the two programs that I think a lot of people can... Uh, can learn from, I think. Um, and with that said, we'll, we'll just kind of get right into it, Jason. So maybe we'll just uh, start with you just kind of laying down um, kind of like the foundation of your programming volumes and how, how a week and all that stuff works. Yeah. Uh, first off, thanks for having me on again, Kevin. I love what you're doing with Boston Stormcast and uh, Precision Powerlifting Systems. And uh, I read all your articles and I'm I'm greatly enjoying what you're putting out. So uh, thank you for that. I appreciate um, that. As far as what we do, so my interpretation uh, of the, the last podcast is very similar. And I think the good thing, the good similarity that we have is principles-based approach um, where it's not always like the same basic training program that's being put out to uh, many different clients um, but where we differentiate and what we we're kind of talking about in, um, in message to fill the use, the listeners in this, uh, we were talking about the data, which we analyze and how we, uh, adopt our approach. And, uh, I got a lot of good feedback on my end from the prescribing adequate volume episode one that we did together. Um, where we discussed a lot the acute chronic ratio uh, and how that baseline kind of serves as um, a very good marker for you when you are prescribing database training. Uh, however, for us, we've been using a similar, but like it's distinctively different as well, uh, metric, which is uh, peak volume. And every week after uh, peak volume is achieved in a meat prep or in a block of training, uh, we then compare that volume to what peak volume is. And so what peak volume is, when you think about this, is every athlete needs progressive overload. Um, and it becomes harder and harder to get progressive overload. And when I say, uh, when I refer to load, I'm referring to weekly volume. Um, when the water M is not increasing, right? Because if you look at the formula itself for volume, which is sets times reps times load, uh, if load isn't increasing, that means we have to make a change to sets and reps. And so what we do is we base our uh, training system off of uh, this peak volume. So if a lifter has not gotten stronger, we know that we have to change the sets and reps in order to uh, predispose them to overload. And then we're, we're basing the entire remaining structure of the, of the competition prep or block uh, off of that peak volume, which was achieved. So um, 
I guess we'll, we'll leave it at that. And then if you have follow-up questions, we can go from there. So how do you get peak volume? So where does this number come from? Uh, it, it's just in comparison to what the lifter has done in the past, the maximum amount of uh, weekly volume. And then we built them up to a new one uh, when we're ready to uh, surpass that and progressively overload them once again. Okay, so you'll go back into their previous training blocks, find out what the highest amount of volume they did for a previous week, and you'll inc- you'll increase that number by, is there like a certain percentage that you try to um, get it over that number, or you just care if it's just over it a little bit? That's, that's still kind of the, uh, the art part of it, if I'm being honest. Uh, we've seen results from uh, doing as little as like a thousand pounds over. Um, Taylor did that in comparison to his Arnold Classic prep last year to, to Worlds. Uh, we literally just repeated the week that he uh, hit peak volume. Uh, three times and it was a thousand pounds more than what he had done at the Arnold. Uh, and we saw progress on all of his AMRAPs and stuff like that right after. So uh, we've seen results on as little as a thousand pounds over. And uh, then we've gone like as much as 10 to 15,000 pounds over, right? Like it depends how much we want to push. Okay. So, and for somebody like Taylor, like a thousand pounds is like, what would you say his average weekly volume tends to be? Cause a thousand pounds is going to be a very small amount. I would imagine like percentage wise. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, Taylor on squat, like he kind of clocks in around 43 to 44,000 pounds of, uh, weekly volume, uh, at a maximum. Um, and usually if we're not, building up to that, uh, we're in the range of like 30 to 35,000 pounds of volume a week. And that would be like in an off season, you'd be getting that 30 to 35. So about 10,000 pounds less. This is actually, this is like in a competition prep. In a competition prep. Okay. So the intensity is starting to increase as you're dropping that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I see what you're saying there. Um, so like a big difference for like how we do things is so that I never get too far away from baseline, no matter what. Um, and this is something that like when I worked with Chico, this is kind of how my programs had run as well is over. So let's say I'm running something for 12 weeks in between meets. If you charted out my volumes, the average weekly volume would be right around baseline for that 12 weeks, no matter what. Um, some days would come above it. Some days would come below it, but the actual average, it would always average out to that baseline. I think a a big difference with how, um, our systems differ is uh, what you guys basically, it's just comp lifts in their, in their programs, right? There's very little variation. Majority of the time, uh, we've, we've used stuff like floor press or, uh, pause deadlift, uh, once in a while, but like, I would say nine out of 10 times it's mainly competition. Yeah. So when, and this is just kind of like my, um, breakdown with the differences when you are using the competition lifts, you can't just continue to hit baseline all the time. Cause like you were saying, you're just kind of, kind of get stuck. There's no progressive overload there. Um, so the way that like my programs with Chico were set up and I've adopted this with my lifters too, is, a vast majority of our volume comes from variations. And these variations might be similar, like a pause or something. Um, We change foot position quite frequently on the squat. We might use a lot of like high bar squats. Um, 
pause deadlifts, opposite stance deadlifts, um, you name it, different grips on, on bench and stuff like that. So the way that this was described to me, so let's just take like a deficit deadlift if we're doing something like that and we're taking it at 70%. Because it's at a deficit, it's actually harder than 70%. So it's a way that we can get similar effort to like what we would use within our comp lifts, but at a decreased load. And hopefully um, the variation is going towards fixing a weakness that the lifter has with their technique within a, within a lift itself. So if we're keeping things at baseline, we might have, um, and obviously closer to a meet, um, I'm more like you guys where the majority of our reps will be from the competition lifts themselves. It'll make up a, a far greater share than like maybe the 20% that they make up further away from a competition. Um, yeah. But we might have our comp lifts at like 80% for triples on a Monday um, and say they're taking six triples and, you know, that's a above average stress day for them. So that's a day that on a daily average, it brings them above baseline. Then their day two squats might be, you know, we might take maybe some pause doubles at 80% and maybe four doubles or something. And this is right at baseline for them. And then maybe on the following day, we have like high bar wide stance pause squats or something, which they might take at 70% because it's a lot difficult. Um, four sets of two or something. So it becomes a lower stress day. But if you average them together, it would be their baseline squat volume. Um, and I'll do this with the deadlifts. we we'll do it with the bench as well. And then closer to a meet, it's a little bit different because I'll actually use the competition lift. So one day might be like heavy triples. Another day might be like lighter sixes to get that tonnage. Um, and we might keep pauses and there might be some small variations if there's still some technique things we want to work on that about six weeks out, we'll just completely um, cut off from there. Right. What uh, I'm very curious to know, and like uh, for anyone who has studied, um, you know, strength training and, and maximal strength development, uh, we all know intuitively or, you know, rationally that uh, a sticking point exists, right, due to the uh, length tension curve. Um, and we also know that joint angle uh, specific strength training produces an effect, right? Um, but it doesn't seem to be like so researched in powerlifting yet. Uh, what have you seen is the carryover of all of that uh, joint angle specific strength training or uh, variation into the main lift? So I think, I think the carryover becomes a number of things. Um, so for one, you know, the law of specificity applies, right? So forces, angles, speeds, like you were saying, need to be as similar as possible to the lifts in which they're going to be carrying over to. So, you know, if we're doing a, a variation that we can't load effectively enough, I don't think there's going to be a lot of carryover. So let's just, I'm just going to, this hasn't happened yet, but let's say I have somebody who wants to do a, I want to put a high bar wide stance pause squat in there, but they could only load it to 50%. It's not going to have enough of a strength carryover to um, yield any benefits. So I would need to find a different variation that they can load appropriately. And maybe this becomes like some type of like secondary movement for, um, for that type of thing. So basically what I'll do is when it comes to the variations, I kind of like analyze what the lifter looks like. And I think if you look at the Eastern European countries, so they use a lot of specific training in a lot of cases 
but a lot of these lifters had over 10 years of doing GPP work and all kinds of other, um, like technique work under the barbell where here in America, we tend to get a lot of lifters starting in their twenties that played other sports. So I do believe they build strengths at angles that helped them be good at their sports through college in a lot of cases. So a lot of my lifters played like football and hockey. And so they were good at those angles and strong at those angles. And now you're asking them to be strong at some slightly different angles. And I think where those variations help is it can help build up some like weaker areas and stuff. Um, I do think at times though, it's more that, that neuromuscular coordination. So it's more of a technique issue. So it, it depends on the actual lifter and like when you watch them squat bench deadlift you can kind of start to put it all together so if i feel it's a technique thing the variations would be very specific so comp bar placement comp foot placement um kind of like what you were talking with like pause deadlifts or something it'll be something like that if i feel it's something that they need to build upon so let's take somebody whose chest is caving forward coming up from the squat so in a lot of cases there i'll use pauses on the halfway up we'll use pin squats and those types of variations to fix it but they don't always work quite as well as putting them in a low bar wide stand squat because in those positions there were a high bar wide stand squats because if they start falling forward there they'll fall over so right. i think there's even like a technique carryover there where it just kind of like ingrains that pattern to keep those like hips under the bar with those types of things and i also think you know the wider we go with the stance is more emphasis on the hip extensors so it helps build up their hips a little bit and I, I do think that some of the lifters that I see here because of how they've developed from playing other sports they need some different angles to kind of strengthen those those angles in order you know if we take the back out of it and we get more hips you know it just it helps catch the hips up with the back in a, in a lot of those cases and, I, and I've seen those variations tend to help my lifters a lot. And I think the other thing where it may come down to, and this may even be more important is psychologically. I think, you know, cause we'll take a variation. We leave it in there for a period of time and we'll leave it in there until it's strong enough where I can take 80% for doubles or triples. Right. Um, so they're taking normal training, uh, no, normal comp stance training numbers with these lifts. And I think for them, they know, all right, well, if I put the bar lower and bring my feet in, I'm confident I can move way more weight. So I think there's like a confidence building aspect to it. And it just like what I really like about it. And like, we kind of talked about this on the messages is it helps me keep effort high while controlling loads. So we can come in and we can train hard every single day in the gym. And you know what that, let's say RPE eight to nine, but if I use a certain variation that they can only load to 70 to 75%, their overall tonnage for the week stays lower, efforts high, the other comp squat day, we can raise above baseline if we want. And like we have that nice balance and it just, it helps keep, I think the lifters stay healthy and make steady progress over time. It's interesting that you, uh, you mentioned all that and it actually got me thinking about something that is, uh, pretty prominent in the community right now. And I, I had a few clients ask me like in the past week, uh, they'll ping me a text and say, uh, Hey Jay, like, what do you think about the, the belt squat craze going on? Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Are you using that in your program or? Yeah. So if my lifters have access to a belt squat, it won't be one of their squat movements. It'll be one of their accessories. Um, so typically 
they have anywhere from like three to five accessory lifts on a given day. And one of them I'll always do some type of extra quad work. So that would just be the quad work I would, I would add in there. That's okay. one of those that like I was kind of talking about before. I don't think you can load it enough to make it a main movement. So like the incline bench press, I use a lot, but I use it in the same manner. It's more of an accessory lift just because most people can't load it to the loads that I want it loaded to for it to actually, um, get into that like main lift spot. Right. Yeah. It was, I was, I was thinking about it and, uh, I know in the past we had to, um, so this is like a, I'm 26, but this is like a back in my day story. <laughs> uh, when Taylor was injured like four years ago, uh, and like, it wasn't like common for, um, many gyms to have a pitch shark. Uh, we had to have Taylor, uh, load up a dipping belt with like four to five plates and he would stand on the, uh, dipping platform with a super heavyweight lifter who was also a client standing on the hanging leg raises side of the dipping platform. And, uh, we used it and honestly, uh, for, for his injury uh, rehabilitation uh, applications or, or training around injury to better say, uh, I really liked it. But um, for me, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm not convinced that I want to implement it into our plans because uh, where you are prescribing a lot of variations and all that, uh, we're trying to keep our, our training model as simple as possible um, so that we can comb through the training data and if something worked, we can repeat it. And if something didn't work, we can uh, modify it by the criteria, which I kind of outlined at the start of this uh, at the start of this episode. Um, so that's kind of like our philosophy, and I I noticed that it's differing quite a bit from uh, yours and what other people in, in powerlifting are doing as well. So you guys, so when you do put a variation in there, right. So like pause deadlifts, would that, that be the only variation that would be in there whatsoever. Right. So that way you, you're able to like track whether that had, um, like carry over to the, to the main lift. Yeah. Like, uh, Matt Gary was, was a mentor for, or is a mentor for, uh, me and also Ben Esgro who I work with. And, um, he said this on a recent podcast as well, that when he implements, uh, you know, closely related, like special exercise or something like that, he'll, he'll try one thing, uh, to see if it worked and if it produced an effect, uh, and if it does keep it in and if it doesn't, you can move on from it. Right. And try the next thing. Uh, but basically it's just trying to like have a, uh, have the scientific method be in training right? So that everything is measurable and you could see if it worked. And, and if it didn't, you kind of know what the next step is, the next study that you have to try and so on and so forth. So when I first, so like for Shiko, so when I first started working with him, what I had noticed with my programs were, um, he has all these, let's say he has 20 exercises to fix a technical issue. Um, on the part of the squat we were talking about, right? So like somebody's chest caving forward, coming up out of the hole. So he's got this list of exercises that he would implement to fix that technical issue. And in my program, they would kind of all be, all be in there. Like one week I might do one, the next I might do another, the following week I might do another, and then they'd kind of repeat itself again. So there, there was a lot of different exercises thrown at me at once. 
And what I had noticed with my lifters when I did that, it's like one of them would get what I was looking for, right? It's like, okay, well now this one's working to keep you upright, but then I'd go use another one and then another one. And then the carryover just kind of wasn't the same as I think there's like with the variations, if you leave it in there for a period of time, there's like, it, it, there's a figuring out process for the lifter. So they actually like the first time might be okay. Then it might get worse before it gets better. So leaving one in there for a period of time, I 100% have found that to be more valuable than taking it in and out. Uh, and what I do now, so I might, when I look at a lifter, so typically like common ones, you'll see the chest caving forward in the squat, uh, the hips rising before the bar comes up on the deadlift. So in those cases there, to me, it's like, okay, we need to build up the legs. We need to teach them how to, you know, keep the hips as close to the bar as, as possible, whether it's on the deadlifts, under the bar, on the squats. So I'll do a whole block where it'll be variations, but we'll just hammer the legs. So say this is a conventional puller. They might have high bar wide stand squats. They'll have sumo deadlifts. Um, their accessory work might have the belt squat in, in this type of thing. So we'll just like have an entire block where we just hammer that leg strength and then we'll, and I'll take out the, so in a lot of those cases, you'll have a lifter who's kind of back strength kind of overpowers their leg strength. So I'll take out conventional deadlifts and other exercises that might build up that back. We might leave like one squat variation in there, like close stance squats, just to keep that back strength. Um, where, where it was before. And then the accessories to kind of keep that back strength, but we'll remove the things that were causing an issue, add in new things, new skills for the lifter to learn and to build upon. And then in the following block or two blocks later, I'll bring that conventional deadlift back in. We'll move the feet again on the, on the squats to see what it looks like. And I think, you know, part of me is not completely sold that it's just building up weak areas of the lifter and having that carryover. I think there's a benefit to removing something that they're kind of messing up. Um, because over time, if you do the same thing over and over and over and over, there becomes a point where you kind of hit this like adaptive resistance where you can't really get better at a skill. So if I take it out, teach them new ones, bring it back in, that kind of like relearning curve seems to like really carry over to the main thing. And I do right. think there's like one big difference is most of my lifters are developmental. So, you know, I have a couple that place 10th at nationals, but for the most part, it's ones who just qualified for nationals. They're doing their first or second or third one where you're training a, you know, somebody like Taylor is a much different athlete with much different, with much different needs too. And you know, I would literally have to like think to myself what I would want to do with a lifter um, under under those circumstances. I'm not sure I would give him as much variations as I would um, with a lot of my lifters. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you say that because I look around on the uh, powerlifting scene, and I think now the talent pool is is, is growing a lot and you could see that in the total that's required to uh, win nationals or even to qualify for USA nationals now with the new qualifying totals, uh, let alone to win worlds, right? Like the standard is increasing so quickly and I'm looking around at how the um, top athletes are training and it's so different. Um, from, from coach to coach and from athlete to athlete. And uh, I had this conversation with my friend, Jason Manninkoff, who uh, he's also 
been an athlete with us uh, on two different occasions. Uh, he's a bench press only guy. He's been in the sport for uh, nearly two decades and um, he's represented Team USA at Bench Press Worlds before. So he's quite quite a well-accomplished powerlifter himself. And uh, he opined to me, he said, Jason, I, I, I sometimes think that uh, you, you see coaching like you're playing a video game with uh, all the sports science that I have and, and the applications. And I have to be able to explain everything that happens. Um, I, I, he says, it, it seems like you're playing a video game when in reality you're trying to hike the Oregon Trail, right? Like it's, it's something that uh, a lot of times athletes will train differently or train in a way which, according to our systems, uh, maybe like, you know, why would that be effective? But I've noticed that the results are still great. And so I've been grappling with this over the past few weeks, like, uh, you know, what, what drives the success of your system? What drives the success of my system of Shaco of, uh, people like Jeremy Hartman Cooper and, uh, trying to learn from what everyone's doing because clearly it's all working. Uh, so that's why it's great to be on this, this episode with you kind of hearing more about what you're doing then. Yeah. And I think, you know, cause I was in the same, when I had like first started, so all I had known was like the Chico way of doing things. And you know, our variations were just everything was in with your comp grip, comp bar placement, comp foot placement, comp deadlift stance. Um, and it was just this, like, you got to build technique stuff. Um, and it wasn't until like I started coaching more people and putting them through the exact same thing that I realized that like, Oh shit. Like there are some things that I'm missing the mark on here, but I think, you know, regardless of, and that's where I reached out to like Gleason and Cooper and Hartman. And I have a, uh, a lifter in Germany who trains with one of Detmar's lifters. So like seeing what those guys do and being able to ask some questions there. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, like the systems that are most effective, I think the data tracking, right? Like you're tracking volumes. And so for me, because I do use so much variations, I actually track, what percentage of my volume comes from the actual competition lifts themselves. So what it would look like on the platform for the squat, the bench and the deadlift. So there are times where, you know, I'll look at a block and it'll be like, man, I don't know why this lifter is lifts didn't go so well. And I'll look and it'll be like, okay, well their comp squats were only at 12%. Where in the past when they 25% of their volume were the comp squats, they yielded the best results. Um, and I think too, as I gain more experience as a coach, being able to see things and implement the right variations at the right times and stuff like that, you know, some of those things will change, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, the majority, like Shiko, I think was one of the first ones that actually did this, like starting to analyze and track a lifters, you know, volumes and number of lifts and, and all of that stuff. And I think the majority of the high level coaches out there, I think that's like a major similarity across the board. And I think at the end of the day, like, even though there are a lot of differences, you know, it's the progressive overload that you're talking about, right? It's how we can manipulate training volumes to yield a strength adaptation for the, for the lifter. Cause even when it comes down for a meat prep for me, that's where I'm hitting our peak volumes. Like I'm looking at what they've done, in previous blocks and we're taking the comp lifts and we're driving volumes at, at that point, you know, up until about five weeks out, then we'll have a light week test and taper 
and taper from there. And I think that's similar to what you guys do, I would imagine, um, minus maybe the tapering strategies and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, since our system is so, um, it's very different than what anyone else is doing, and we'll say that, right? And obviously that's because um, the origins of the knowledge of, of daily undulating periodization uh, with Ben's practice with it and uh, researching with Dr. Mike Zordos down at Florida Atlantic, uh, and then kind of cultivating that in our own way with um, my like Excel applications and, and sports science stuff. Uh, it's become its own unique animal. Um, and for us, the, the things that we're studying, because we like to have, um, simplicity in our planning because it allows us to see what the effect is uh our experiments related to peak volume right like you just mentioned that uh you will hit peak volume in the competition phase uh for your lifters it's when you really ramp it up um this is an experiment for example that we did with uh eli burks at nationals and he lifted so well um even though his total wasn't a personal best that was a matter of circumstance because we didn't have to uh risk it because his competitors missed their squats, right? So we kind of just uh, sent in lower attempts to secure the win. Um, so that, that was an experiment. Like I've, I've tried uh, with Owen Hubbard and my uh, co-coach here at the Strength Guys, Alfred. Uh, we tried beginning the competition phase two weeks early. So six weeks out instead of four weeks out. Uh, Cause Owen kept telling us, you know, I get so much out of intensity. I get so much out of intensity. Um, and so it's really interesting to see what happened when we gave him a mix of RPEs in our training structure. So it sounds like you're, you're more experimenting with, uh, you know, the, the percentages of, of main lifts to special exercises and all that. Uh, but we're more so experimenting with like, uh, moving the cycle of our, our blocks around, if that makes sense. So like where you would hit those peak volumes, like where exactly that like fits for each individual lifter. Yeah. Or, or like how many weeks out you'll hit uh, certain like intensities, right? Like some people uh, don't get a ton out of intensity and, and some seem to really benefit from it. Um, so it's these things that we're like trying to individualize within a very simple structure. And so, and you were kind of explaining, so you guys have a little bit different of a system for the DUP stuff, correct? Than like what you typically see on the internet or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I think the issue more than anything is that, uh, DEP has never, uh, been explained to most people very, very well from a practical sense. Um, like even now I, I see people like doing sets of seven and, and what have you. And, uh, I kind of doubt whether they understand why they're doing sets of seven right like for us we don't just arrive at doing seven reps or nine reps because uh an odd number is unique and cool right like uh it's to accomplish something with the workloads that we're doing uh so i guess to say that with dup and mike Zardos will say this all the time as well uh it's not a training program it's a training system so uh our training for like an entire meat prep, if you're looking at like 12 weeks or whatever, 
Uh, it's very similar in structure. We change very few things in the way of uh, the training split or the exercises involved. But what we're doing is we're constantly changing uh, sets, reps, intensity uh, in a linear way, of course, so that we can arrive at our goals for what we want to achieve with workload. Uh, so peak volume first in the preparatory phase. And then in the competition phase, how at a higher intensity, so when I'm doing like sets of five at 80% and three at 85 and, and singles at 92 and a half percent, uh, how far or how close do we want to be to peak volume? And so these are the decisions which we make in order to uh, design our programs, basically. So it truly is a system which is designed off of the uh, data rather than the other way around. So you'll find a peak volume, figure out where you want that in the lifter's schedule and kind of work backwards from there. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll hit peak volume usually in the preparatory phase. So uh, about like say nine weeks out or whatever. And then uh, we're structuring the rest of the block based off of how we want to experiment with that more or less. So once you hit peak volume, uh, where do you go from there? So that next like eight weeks or so. Yeah, so usually you have to taper, right? Because uh, doing the most amount of training that you've ever done in your life in a week uh, is very stressful. So the next week we usually be a taper. Uh, and then after that, we'll try to uh, keep the workload relatively high, uh, depending on who the person is. So for someone like uh, Taylor, he's shown that he only requires training at about 50% of peak volume. Uh, in the competition base in order to have a good meet. Uh, that was Arnold's and that was also Nationals, this past Nationals. So uh, two of his best performances to date. Whereas like someone like Sean Moser, who won the Arnold Classic last year, or Eli Burks, they need to be at 70% or more of peak volume in the competition phase in order to have their best meet. Um, so it's very interesting just to sit back and, and watch these top athletes and how they respond to such different training structures uh, in, in their workload distribution. Have you found that it changes for those same lifters at like given points within their like training life? Like I know for like some of my lifters, like there's been certain times where I can crush them with volume. They respond very well, but then maybe the following year I do the same thing and it doesn't work out quite as well. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting one. Cause I, I mean, these are thoughts that I have, but, um, I think when like execution is an issue, it could be that like maybe you want to have more intensity earlier in the early earlier in the meat prep to allow them to practice more. Um, but there's other variables as well, right? Like sometimes meat day can just mess you up. So that would be an instance where like you know you'd want to trade off uh, volume for intensity a little bit earlier in the plan. But generally, um, we try to be as objective as we can. And we found that by pushing volume in our system, uh, the lifters get strong uh, more often than not, like nine times out of 10, right? And uh, when someone's getting stronger and they feel that, confidence is never really an issue. So what happens if a lifter has some type of like technique issue you see within the lift itself? Um, how do you guys go about 
correcting that that aspect. So let's say not somebody like Taylor, maybe, um, but you know, more of a like novice to intermediate lifter under those circumstances. Yeah, um, this is a really interesting one because uh, one of the things I'm studying right now is motor learning. And uh, I know Mike Key has written on this recently as well. Um, but in motor learning, like there's there's such a thing where uh, sometimes people just have to figure stuff out for themselves, right? Um, and that is to say that by looking at, you know, Jane Doe uh, walking down the street, I can't tell you uh, what her best squat technique would look like. Uh, all that we can do is kind of reinforce her process, right? So uh, teach this person how to put the bar on her back, how to unwrap the bar, uh, how to brace, you know, how to do a three-step walkout, all these things. And then to watch what it looks like when she does it. Um, so our approach to technique coaching we try to be really uh, hands-on with it and saying you need to do this, this, or this, and this. But when it comes to someone's like uh, chest caving forward or, or something like that, uh, we found that you can't always fix it. And uh, sometimes you can fix it, but it may leave them worse off in performance in the long run. Uh, so there's actually a general level of acceptance that we have for uh, some technical issues because we just, like, if you fix it, sometimes the lifter will end up worse than before, right? Um, so and by worse, you mean, like, going backwards with weight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you give them, like, lighter weights and stuff, or, or would you just – it would kind of be the same. Obviously, as long as they're not going to get hurt, right? Um, would you give them basically the same – like average relative intensities as somebody with in a similar like skill level within the sport itself. So say like a novice lifter um, with good technique, a novice lifter with chest caving forward, would they have like similar like volumes and stuff? And I mean, obviously you're going to figure out like what works best for them, but would you do anything different um, for one lifter compared to the other? Yes, yeah, so um, working with John Downing and the Ohio State University powerlifting team, a bunch of the athletes actually just completed um, what we call a technique phase. So with that, it'll be like moderate reps in a DEP scheme. Um, usually we'll employ high-frequency deadlifting using Matt Gary's method as well, so deadlift singles just to reduce muscle damage, of course. And uh, we'll reduce their one rep max by 5 to 10% for the space. So basically everything's going to end up being pretty low in RPE. And uh, we'll just coach the crap out of everyone and uh, see how people are moving by the end of it, right? Uh, that's been a, a good experiment for us. Uh, one example of where we used a special exercise to, to get some improvement was for uh, Owen Hubbard, who won the European Championship last, last week. Uh, we incorporate, or incorporated uh, pause deadlifts into his training uh, in preparation for this meet, which is not something that we normally do. And a few weeks after we did, he had this light bulb moment where he was finally able to uh, feel tension in his glutes and his quads in the sumo deadlift. And uh, that led to 
due to circumstance, we couldn't pull a PR because he had to secure for the win. But I mean, he absolutely crushed his third deadlift. So it's hard to say that that method didn't create a uh, positive effect, so to speak. And I think, you know, you brought up a good point earlier where, you know, you kind of have to let them figure it out. And that's kind of where I think the variations for me play like a, a major role. So let's just say like somebody's knees are caving in um, on the squat or even for that, for the deadlift, if they're having a hard time feeling their quads, if I stretch their stance out, make it wider and wider and just force them to learn how to use their, use their legs, how to push those knees out, keep the chest tall. Um, I think it gives them that experience because no matter how many words I say, sometimes they just don't quite understand it. And then from there, we'll leave it in for a block and start like bringing the feet back in and stuff. And uh, same thing, like say the knees are caving in on the squat. Like me personally, that's something I do want to fix because I, I just see a, a loss of control there that we, we could do better. Because if tempo fixes it or if it looks good under lighter weights, to me, that's just a breakdown in technique. And like having Chico as my first coach, like technique was just drilled into me from the beginning. I might stretch their legs out there because it makes it harder to, it teaches them, they don't have a choice but to push, push their knees out and start like learning those technical aspects of it. And I think for me too, where I have a lot of like novice to intermediate lifters is they don't know where they're going to be strongest yet, right? They haven't been lifting long enough to know what stance, like how wide their feet should be on a squat or what stance on a deadlift. So I think moving their feet around and just watching them lift for weeks in those different positions just shows me where they're strongest. Like maybe they're stronger squatting closer than they are wider. So like it gives me that variability to kind of assess the athlete's strengths and weaknesses and, and kind of make sure that they're in a good position come, you know, competition time. And then we'll grill those, uh, grill those competition patterns right before, right before a competition. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you say that with like kind of experimenting with stance as well. Um, cause for people who have followed, um, Taylor for a long time, like he used to be a wide stance squatter. Uh, and now he's actually found that he's strongest narrow stance. Right. And, he made that discovery on his own as a result of uh, glute meat and TFL injuries in back-to-back years. Um, so certainly if, if you would have asked me, would I have rather uh, found out that he was stronger narrow stance than wide stance uh, through injuries or through do, doing some variations more earlier on in his training, I would have sided on uh, incorporating some variations and, and as well, like uh, someone like Rob Ali, uh, he signed up with our group four years ago and his conventional deadlift one rep max, conventional deadlifter at the time was 600 uh, and that was in the gym. And now he's like an ultra wide stance sumo deadlifter who's pulled 725 in the gym. Um, so those differences, it's like, I wish earlier on that I would have been doing more of what you were doing with this variation because we would have found these things out and maybe had success a lot sooner, so to speak. I think too, in a, in a lot of cases though, like even in, in that one, like that time he spent pulling conventional just built up his back. So when he started to spread his feet out, you know, he's still squatting. So it's working on that leg strength by the time he built his feet out. Like it's still like, I think it still plays into it and you end up at the same place, maybe at the same time, maybe not. But, uh, you know, especially like earlier on, I just like, I like having the younger lifters just 
explore different positions. I think it builds the skill level within the lift too, because you're constantly throwing just one little tiny variable at them in a similar movement with similar forces at similar speeds where they got to kind of like continuously figure it out. So no matter what variable you throw at them, if everything starts looking good, the second you just go back to that comp stance, like their technique, their strength is just, it's, it's a stable movement pattern that just holds up very well under load. Um, but like I was saying before, if like somebody like Taylor, who's won multiple national championships and world championships at this point, like, I don't know if that would make him any better. I mean, how can you get better than winning a world championship? I think it's, it's a matter of like, um, Hartman actually made me watch this documentary on, um, Pyridemos, the Greek weightlifter. And it's a four-part series on YouTube. It's free. It's amazing to watch, like even just to see the like cultural things that were going on at the time. But basically like the major takeaway of it, like he got into weightlifting because he was picking apples as, as a kid and a national weightlifting coach walked by and saw that the kid had huge legs. Gets into weightlifting at the time. He's part of the Russian system for a little over 10 years. So it's sub-maximal volume, technique, 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 technique. That coach leaves, Bulgarian method comes in. It took him four years to um, get used to that Bulgarian method program, but it literally yielded the greatest weightlifter of all time. And that Greek weightlifting team, uh, that Greek dream team back in the 90s there, all of them came from the Soviet system into the Bulgarian method and they were winning gold medals. Like I think it, a lot of it's a matter of circumstance and the right program at the right time for the, for the right athlete. And I think our job as a coach, and you had mentioned like, this is the science of it, right. Is trying to figure out what is appropriate at this time for this athlete, like figuring out their needs. Um, and to me, that's the hardest part of trying to like learn this stuff. It's funny that you say that because like as we were talking about on uh, Instagram, I told you that uh, like for our first world championship and for uh, Taylor's first three national championships and also Clinton Lee, who's the second ranked 74 in the world currently, uh, I used to coach him for a long time as well. Uh, we used more Shaco uh, style training prescriptions, right? And, and at the time, um, it got Taylor to within a soft lockout of winning a world championship, uh, in Texas. So this was three years ago now. And, uh, it, it got Clinton astronomically strong. Right. And so if you were to ask me if we could have the same success that we've had since then, uh, with these Shaco style prescriptions, I don't think I would say yes. I think that, uh, the style that we're using currently of, of DUP, it's very controlled, systematic. I think that's the way to train uh, these top athletes. But at the time, it would be hard to argue with the results that they got. So um, maybe, like you said, there's different styles of training for, for different uh, levels of training experience as well. Yeah, I, I definitely like... I think it'd be hard to convince me that there's not. Um, what are some of your biggest criticisms since you took people through a, a Shiko template? What were some of your biggest criticisms of that style of training? Yeah, so I think that training squat bench dead in one session is, is very good from a stamina perspective, uh, especially as you get closer to a meet. Um, I don't want to 
take words exactly from his mouth because I mean, you can just go watch the interview I'll, I'll reference here. Uh, it was when Shaco sat down with Omar Isuf and he said that a, a criticism he had of training squat bench dead on one day is uh, essentially that it would compromise deadlift training for that day, right? Because you'd be fatigued after you had done all the training beforehand. Um, but I, I strongly disagree with that notion. I think that training squat bench dead on one day, uh, if you get used to it, you will adapt to it. And then it's just your training, right? Like for all of us now, all of our athletes, uh, it's what we're used to. So uh, I've noticed since transferring over to this style of programming, which I learned from Ben, um, that athletes don't bonk on deadlifts anymore. Like there's no issues with stamina or anything like that. So that's one criticism. Uh, how often do you guys squat bench and deadlift on the same day? Uh, in a week, at least two times a week in, in, in a meat prep, uh, in the off season, maybe it's only one time per week. Uh, and then we can go uh, like up to three times per week would be the most that we do. Okay. So it's, it's, it's very basic, right? Like Monday and Saturday, you're doing squat bench dead. Uh, I, I'm with you with that. I don't think it's necessarily detrimental. I don't think it's makes anybody any more prone to injuries. I mean, you know, I know of a few coaches that have had really good success and they squat bench and deadlift every single day of training. It's just, yeah. you know, yeah. making sure you manage loads. You're not maxing out every day or something. Um, but from an actual like specificity standpoint, it, may, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and aside from that, I, I think that with Shaco's system, there could be a melding of models with the principles which we use uh, with regards to peak volume and acute chronic ratio um, to where you could basically take our data principles and apply them to Shaco's training, right? Like, and you could have a kind of lower RP, like a higher focus on technique uh, and just a lot more sets. And you could probably get very, very good results that way. Um, but for us with DUP, it's very easy for humans to think in patterns. And so we know now that like by adding one rep to every single day of the week. So let's say we're going to go from seven reps, five reps and three reps to eight reps, uh, six reps and four reps. We know exactly what to do with our intensity for the next week. And we also know what to expect in terms of the increase in volume. Uh, so I'd say that having a, a simpler system with less change from uh, day to day, makes it easier for the programmer to interpret uh, training situations and put an intervention into place. Uh, so that would be another criticism. And I know that's kind of like unconventional, uh, but these are just the things I've noticed since uh, transitioning more to what uh, Ben Esgro and I now do together. I actually, it's, it's funny that you say that because I had like similar issues when I was trying to give people you know, I was doing more of a Chico style, um, template was one, the weights are too light. Um, I do think at times, right. So like he wouldn't, it was very, very, very rare that I ever went over 85% of one rep max in training. There'd be the occasional like singles at 90 type of thing. And the whole argument is it's basically, um, exertion load, right. Where that, 
effort of the second rep at 85% might be harder than a single at 90%. So if you're taking twos or threes at 85%, theoretically, the stress is harder um, than singles or doubles at 90%. But it's usually at 85% or higher that you start to see those technique breakdowns. So you can practice under uh, similar stress conditions for that you know, technique to create that stable movement pattern so that on the platform you can maximally load it because it's not going to, it's not going to fall apart. Uh, and his whole, that, like, like you said, because, um, I think by practicing a lot of heavy lifts and training, you would be more likely to uphold your technique on the platform rather than doing very like, uh, not so difficult training. Right. And then, just loading up a one around and seeing what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you like the second, so when I was doing this with my lifters, the second you get up into that, like 92 to 95% range, they started to get pushed around and it could be a confidence thing. Don't get me wrong. But like, I realized that once I started hitting more reps at heavier weights, you know, the first time they take 90%, they might get pushed around a little bit, but they're able to make those adjustments. The next time they, they hit it, they own it. And then we go up a little bit more. And so they're taking 90, you know, somewhere between 92 and 95% and they're owning it. And then they get on the platform and their third attempts look just like their first attempts, just a little bit heavier. Um, so I, the technique of heavier weights, I do feel is very different than, than the lighter weights. Um, so we started doing a hell of a lot more of that. Um, and for him, so anytime something, I think this is where like some similarities, with his program is like, if my lifts weren't going well, I would just get more volume. And in some cases, I think lifters need more intensity, not more volume or vice versa, less intensity, more volume. And I think a lot of that stuff just like changes, changes over time. Um, uh, there was one other thing I was going to, uh, mention about the differences in his program, but the, Oh, the very, the variation. So, like his exercises are great, but at the same time, like I'm not Boris Chico. I'm not making those adjustments in person. And like, no matter what, like what we write on a piece of paper, there's so many adjustments that go into coaching on a day-to-day basis. Like, you know, like when you were saying when Taylor was a little jacked up and you had to do some, you know, make some adaptations and training to work around an injury or some days just feel like shit. Some days feel better. Um, so putting the right weight on the bar for the right amount of reps to make sure you're hitting those loads that you want to hit in training, like become the, the like biggest part of it. So once I started, I stopped focusing so much on writing the programs and started focusing more on coaching. I left stuff in there for longer periods of time and like, I'll run a variation. So I had one lifter He's a relatively new lifter, uh, was in a car accident and gets spinal pain, like neck pain from high bar squats, but it started, the pain started around 225. So we started around 165. We were doing some light volume work with high bar squats. He's had high bar squats in his program now for like 25 weeks. And he literally just took high bar 315 pause squats, uh, this week, zero pain. So like for me, you know, in those circumstances there, I want to build a resilient lifter. And in a lot of cases, like challenging that perception of, of the actual pain and builds confidence at the same time. Like I wanted to leave that in there for a period of time. And there's other, other times where like, 
You know, you might, I might do a variation. It's so freaking hard for the lifter that we can't hit the numbers that I want to lift. So I'll leave that in there. We'll just build it up, build it up, build it up. And, you know, it might be in there for 12 to 16 weeks. We take it out and put those comp lifts back in. And all of a sudden you're starting to see like these big jumps in, uh, in squats, deadlifts, bench, whatever the lift actually may be. So I think leaving things in there, seeing if it's working and like, for me, like seeing if it's working is actually like my eyes, seeing them get stronger in that lift and comp lifts are still in there. So also seeing how those are kind of moving at the same time and just like making those like daily adjustments. Right. Yeah. We were, um, with regards to the daily adjustments, because obviously it's hard when we're training people online. Right. And, uh, you can only be on your phone so often to text and, and watch a video or, or pick up the phone and have a call when an athlete's training. Um, we're looking at, at getting into velocity-based training. Uh, the reason why we haven't done more so already is because we're waiting for a new company called Rep One, who partnered with Open Barbell, uh, to actually just come out with all of the velocity-based training units which they're designing. Um, but I, I think that that's a that'll end up being a great innovation and assessment tool for us that will uh, accomplish the goals of monitoring our athletes on a weekly basis or a daily basis, sorry. And uh, also making sure that we, um, because we prescribe percentages so often, that the load is more uh, reflective of their current capability than maybe our current system is. So uh, we're really, really looking forward to that in the coming months once that unit comes out. How do your lifters now, so say they're training, weight feels light, do they have um, the ability to go up in weight or do you just make them run? We, we, we generally advise them not to. Uh, we use the APRE method of uh, assessing people, so AMRAPs, whenever we want to do an assessment. Uh, sometimes this is like, you know, one to three weeks apart from one another. Uh, sometimes it's like every, like, four months, right? Like, it depends what our goal is and when we want to test. Uh, and based off of their AMRAP performance, we'll make a uh, adjustment from what we see and what they've done uh, to their 1RM for the next cycle. So we, our training is auto-regulated. Uh, it's too much, honestly, to do an AMRAP every week. Uh, so I, I don't think that we can do that. Um, so it's led us to, you know, you have... AMRAPs as a method of assessment, uh, velocity as a method of assessment, and RP is a method of assessment. And uh, we think that velocity is the least invasive, and it's also it's the most objective because uh, RP is all feelings and stuff, right? So right. Um, we we try to we try to stray away from that, uh, and we think that velocity is ultimately where we'll end up long term. I'm very interested more. I, I was asking Arian a bunch of questions about philosophy based training. Cause I'm very like interested in that, in those concepts. And like you, I don't use RPs. I use it as a monitoring tool. So every lifter puts their uh, mood entering the gym in, and then their last set RPE. Um, and they put it like with a video too, even if they're in person so that I can, you know, cause a lot of times what we see as coaches and what they feel as lifters are very different. And like, I joke around my lifters all the time. I'm like, I don't care about your feelings. Um, so with the, uh, with the RPE stuff. Um, but I do feel at times, like I want them to be more mature and being able to make those decisions as lifters. So 
I use, I call them intensity intervals. So based off of the rep ranges that they're doing of a given exercise, and this is all based off of just my lifters running my program is they'll have a range of percentages that they're allowed to use as long as they've been with me for a period of time. So let's say for like, you know, a set of six reps can be anywhere from 70 to 80%. Um, and let's say it's programmed at 75%. So if it's easy, they can go up 5%. If it's hard, they can go down 5%, but they can't go up anymore and they can't go down anymore. Uh, if it's prescribed at less, so say it's prescribed at 70% and they go up to 80% or anything more than 5%, the next time that they do that lift in training, they actually have to drop the load. Okay. So if they're feeling really good coming into the gym, so they're either normal or, you know, excited to train, uh, they've, it's not a brand new exercise that they've done before. They're allowed to push it on a given day. Um, but if they push it too much, I actually have them drop it by the same percentage on another day. So their actual weekly load stays about the exact same, right. but it allows them to kind of push training at, at certain times. And like at times I'll tell them specifically, don't push this exercise, but if it feels good on this day, you can push this one um, instead. But even then, like, you know, Cause you'd be surprised. Like if, if you put RPEs in there, like what one extra set of five at 70% can do to like total tonnage for the, for the actual week and like just throw off all like, especially if you're keeping track of it all. Right. And like, you're using that to make assessments and to further improve training. And then all of a sudden you look at it. Cause like I ran RPEs in my group for like a month and I'm like, I don't even know what you've done for freaking numbers. Like we can't do this anymore. <laughs> that's, that's my issue with it. Um, I think someone like Mike P has ways to navigate around that and be successful. Uh, but like on my end, we, uh, for Owen's prep, we had him do a lot of RP stuff on bench and on uh, squat in the build up to the European championships. And that was honestly, it was something that was uh, an innovation for us. We hadn't really uh, put that much RP uh, into our programming uh, as of late. And uh, although it was difficult to, to track completely, uh, I have to say that I was, I was very pleased with, with how well uh, prepared he was after that period of time uh, on competition day. And it was, I mean, we had a, a bad bounce with, with one of the ref calls. Uh, so he didn't end up being, uh, but he was, he was very strong in the competition. So I was pleased with that experiment. And, um, honestly, I, I may incorporate it more now, right? Like things are always evolving. Right. Exactly. And like, you know, for me, if I use a new variation that the lifters never done, I'll put an RPE that I want to see on it. Cause like I'm throwing darts at a dartboard guessing on an actual percentage, and then we'll just go in and adjust the numbers. Um, you know, it's the goal of training. We're just trying to put the right weight on the, on the bar at the right times, um, you know, for, e for each lifter. And I think there's a number of ways to do it. And I think, you know, it just comes down to each coach sticking with their system and understanding how all of those different aspects fit into their training. So like for me with like velocity based training, just because of, you know, my background of having Chico as a coach for three years, speed was never an influencer of training. Like I was told to slow down my, 
50 and 60%. So that it would be the same speed as my one rep max squat. Like you're, you're trying to groove a particular pattern. So I'm not trying to move 50 and 60% exceptionally fast. I'm trying to just kind of like feel the positions, move it around. It's almost like a tempo squat at those, uh, at those percentages. And that's how I coach my lifters. However, you know, if I'm repeating, so we might take 80% for triples multiple times throughout blocks or even with different variations, right? I can compare how, you know, the velocity of this squat at this intensity to this one, you know, their high bar to low bar squats or something like that. Like I feel there are ways that like velocity based training would help me better, like analyze what the lifter may need at at given times. And like, uh, I'm really interested to kind of see where that goes in the future. Once it becomes a little bit more affordable for lifters. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the new units will uh, be affordable, right? And uh, if you do end up picking one up, I'm very curious to hear about your experiences with it. Uh, I'd probably like to talk to Arian as well about his experiences with it. But uh, from my end, like, we're, we're likely going to settle on um, using a, a force velocity profiling protocol in the warm up uh, on that day to uh, calculate the one rep max of the lifter based off of their warm-up sets and their first work set. Uh, And we'll use that for the training sessions. So that will be a way of both monitoring performance and also adjusting the training load. And then the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to track and plot out the uh, velocities at fixed weights in the warm-up. So over time, we'll see which way we're trending. Uh, Because, I mean, the first thing that's going to go, Ben has said this, and and William Kramer from the University of Connecticut has said this, that uh, power will be the first thing to go when you're uh, entering into a fatigue state. Right. So um, we'll look to monitor that and maybe get a jump on any like non-functional overreaching, which is occurring. So these are kind of the plans and thoughts that we have for how we're going to implement it. Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, on meet day, like using something like that, because it almost the goal is to try to take the guesswork out of what's there on a third attempt. Right. Yeah. So be more accurate with third attempt selections and, uh, and kind of just knowing what's there in a given day. I think, you know, I'd be interested to see how that plays out. Um, I think variables too, right? Like I, I remember at nationals, we, we hooked up the uh, open barbell unit to uh, Taylor's squat rack for, for uh, all of his warm up sets. And, and he said, guys, like I, I cramped at the last competition at worlds and uh, I want to be more slow with my warm-up sets today so that I don't maybe risk cramps. Uh, so ultimately we couldn't do anything with velocity-based training at nationals, right? So uh, it's not always going to work and it's not foolproof either. Right. And, and nothing is, but that's why hopefully we'll have jobs moving forward. Like we won't be replaced by computers because the actual eye of the coach and what the coach sees ultimately is always going to like, you know, it's how we interpret that data and what we're seeing in front of us with that lifter, you know, that makes us a valuable commodity to them, you know, like, yeah, 
I, I think we're so far away from being replaced by a computer, to be honest. I'm not buying the uh, AI stuff. Right yeah, now. that's kind of what I was dancing around, like those types of things. I just don't think, yeah. you know, I think it's better than having no program written for you at all. But like it, you're trying to simplify something that's so complex that we really just don't truly understand. Um, are you familiar with like John Kiley's stuff? Yeah, yeah. So like he just, he brings up like a lot of great points. Like, you know, it's not just all about mechanical stress. Like there are so many things that go into fatigue and physiological adaptations of strength that we just don't truly understand the complexity of it. And to try to narrow it down into a simple computer program to be able to analyze those complexities and that computer program is designed by a human being who doesn't truly understand those complexities. There's no way that I can see it actually like working. Well, it's, it's not even the uh, AI system, which is out currently, which is Skynet, but also like AI as a whole. Um, I read a really interesting, like it was an abstract article on uh, BBC last night that was talking about how, um, it was talking about issues uh, with the implementation of AI uh, for like driving or recognition purposes or something like this. And uh, we know like if you have an iPhone or something that Siri isn't always right, right? Like I, I certainly wouldn't want to rely on Siri uh, in a life or death situation to interpret a sentence that I had. Um, they also cited examples where like by putting a piece of white and black tape on a stop sign, uh, visual recognition technology could not interpret that it was a stop sign any longer, but to the human brain, it was completely obvious. It was a stop sign. Uh, and their final example is that by putting a few circles on the surface of a baseball and coloring it, uh, light Brown, uh, visual recognition didn't think it was a baseball anymore. It thought it was an espresso. Uh, so the things, even AI and, and recognition technology and all that, I don't think it's all the way there yet. I, I could be wrong and I could be ignorant, but uh, I thought that article raised some really good points, which are uh, relevant to our conversation right now. Yeah, no, that, and I think too, like, Inputting all of that info. So, you know, I want to know how they're feeling, but like, you know, if you're putting how many calories you ate, how many hours you slept, like you can start really turning some things on in the lifter's head. That's like, Oh, maybe I haven't eaten enough. Maybe I haven't slept enough and they can have negative influences upon training. Like calories don't matter if your body weight's stable. If you're not tired, the amount of sleep you had the night before, it doesn't really matter. And even then, like it, there's the correlation of like how that stuff can negatively affect one day. It, it's hard to come by. So like, I just have them, they have, you know, from one to five, how they're feeling, you know, five being excited, one being fatigued, and then three being normal. Cause I don't want to draw attention to some things that might not have affected training if they weren't aware of them. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, trying to get the info into a computer program like that, it can just make, you know, those lifters that are just super an analytical, hyper aware of things that might not negatively affect training that now can negatively affect training. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, um, maybe on the right model, it would be possible to, uh, build out like a robust AI system. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Cause even in this call, like we've listed, uh, 
Gleason and Hartman and Cooper and Shaco and you and, and us and Mike T like all these, these different coaches with different systems uh, that are all coaching champions and, and really, really good athletes who are progressing. Uh, and like AI, true AI would analyze all of us and like built the model that was best. Right. Like uh, it's very hard because we don't even know truly what the best model is. And uh, I hope that's mine and and you probably hope that's yours, but we have no definitive way of proving that right now. Right. And even then it might just come down to which model is best for which lifter at a certain given time within their, their lifting career. So there might not be a best model, just might be a, a, a matter of appropriate circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, yeah, so let's wrap it up there. Been talking for a little over an hour. Um, let everybody uh, know where they can find you guys on the internet, Jason. Yeah, um, the Strength Guys on Instagram. That's where we're most active. And then, uh, if you want to follow me personally, uh, at Jason TSG on Instagram. Uh, I hardly post, so don't have high expectations. Uh, <laughs> and our website is www.thestrengthguys.com. Awesome. Follow me on Instagram, KWCAN, our team, Precision Power Lifting Systems. Jason, great conversation. I'm happy we, uh, we were able to do a second one. I think, uh, I think people will enjoy this one. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Stay strong, Boston.